Forget frequently asked questions. Common sense. Common knowledge. Or Google. How about advice from a real genius? 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond. They become very good at what they do. But only 0.1% are real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius Podcast, now part of the Finding Genius Foundation. I have uh, Dr. Laura Esserman. She's the co-founder of Quantum Leap Healthcare Collaborative. And we're going to talk about uh, breast cancer and the genetic underpinnings of it. So, Laura, thanks for coming. Thanks for having me. And I'm also, as you know, I'm on the faculty of the University of California, San Francisco. I'm a professor of surgery and radiology, and I run the breast program there. Well, okay. Yeah, tell me a little bit more about your, your background. How did you get involved with cancer and breast cancer in particular? So, well, thanks for asking. I, you know, have been interested in, I'm interested in most things. That's, uh, that's, I think, the hallmark of everything about me. I'm, I've always been interested in science and theater and the human condition. And I was very involved in science and research. And when I went to medical school, I went to medical school at Stanford. And one of the reasons I went there is that you could take as much time as you wanted to pursue additional research. And I originally worked on sort of predictive modeling and sort of looking at how we make decisions and policies about screening. Okay. Looking at cervical cancer screening. So back in the late 70s, actually, the the data from the model suggested that we should screen every three years and that there was a reason to do that because actually if you screen more often, it flooded the, the system with more tests than there were cytotechnologists to read it and it increased the false negative and false positive rates. But in fact, the disease was slow growing, at least that's what we estimated. And the conclusion was that every three-year screening would be really the appropriate way to screen. At that time, uh, people felt like, oh, women could never remember and it wouldn't work. And it was sort of a crazy attitude. And I remember being so incredibly frustrated that no one would listen to data on modeling and thinking about policy and thinking about biologic, the biologic basis for screening and why you should apply it, you know, based on science and decided at that point that I would just go back to doing more basic science research and immunology. And what's interesting is that, of course, a couple of years ago, the screening guidelines have finally changed every three years. So that was um, at least a 30-year lag that people have done this. And I'd worked with a guy named David Eddy at the time. And so then I was working on immunology, working in the laboratory of Ron Levy. And when I had, but maintained both my interest in basic science and policy and During the time that I was working in policy, I had edited a number of courses at the business school and had looked at, had taken courses on cost effectiveness and comparative cost effectiveness. And Alan Entoven at the time actually recruited me to come to business school to pay for me to come to the business school and be a Hartford fellow and learn about modern tools of management and to take Mm. those concepts back to medicine. And initially I thought, gosh, why would I do that? But then realizing the huge issues that we're going to be facing medicine and sort of thinking that I should really look across all industries. And I think it was when I was in business school that it really, uh, and I was both an attending at the time and and, and business school. So I was doing both and I had an eight month old anyway. So uh, it 
turned out that that was not going to be an unusual part of my life because my life is just that busy always. But I really felt like the right thing for me to do was to focus. I, I was, of course, had focused really in my training then in surgery and immunology and oncology that I really wanted to do surgical oncology and focus at first on all oncology. And then I thought over the course, as I was learning in business school and really learning about systems and really learning about how modern companies really use data and use learning, that there are ways to accelerate learning and you know, that medicine is a business like any other, and we should be thinking about innovation. But what really struck me was that there was just a complete lack of a systems approach for data collection with built-in process for driving improvement. And well, what kind time, of data needs to be collected for breast cancer that's not being collected or not being uh, databased properly? Well, we take care of people. We collect the data on every person, but we don't routinely collect data on every single person and and have their outcomes collected as part of care. I mean, people think that we do. We do that when we're doing big research papers or we do it when we get data, we recollect it for registries, but it's not a routine part of care. And I think my one of the big things that I have tried to work on in my career is to integrate a process where you are collecting the data for quality improvement, that your goal should be to do better tomorrow than you are today, that everything you should be doing should be about moving forward. And it's interesting, in business school, one of the systems that I really looked at was mammography screening. And I got a number of my classmates to work with me on looking at these issues. And I looked at the international variation, and I looked at the way different people were approaching it. And I learned a lot about, you know, about process and systems. And the, one of the reasons why I decided to focus on breast cancer was because at the time when I had finished my training, women were being treated terribly. And they, if someone had a mass, they would go to the operating room and they would not know if they were going to wake up with a radical mastectomy or not. This is sort of the late Well, they wouldn't tell them? Wow. The late 80s. Okay. And people, women were not included in the decision-making process. They were there wasn't information. There weren't any centers where everything was put in one place for them. They were left to fend for themselves and women were really angry. And I felt like, wow, this is an incredible opportunity. I can focus on breast cancer from soup to nuts, from methods of detection, screening, uh, treatment, diagnosis. It's a way to insert science, to insert policy, and to really think about a comprehensive systematic approach to, to improving not just the outcomes of care, but the care itself to create more holistic systems, to make sure that you're taking care of the whole person, bringing all the people that were required to take care of someone into one center, to build a model center in my backyard, which I went to UCSF to do it this way, and to say, we can have high touch care and we can have you know systems of research that are really devoted to improvement. And you know- So what, is that, uh, what does that look like today in, you know, Quantum, what 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 do you guys do that you wish would would have been done years ago? Well, I think so. I run the breast care center at the University of California, San Francisco, and we there are a number of things that we do today that we've been working on for years, and the wisdom study is is one of those things. But the idea is, if you are at risk for, or you're worried that you have a symptom, or you have cancer, you come to one place, and all of the specialties are organized in one place for you and your care is coordinated. That's what it looks like. 
But what we also want to do is we want to find ways to constantly improve what we do. So if I'll talk about a couple of the initiatives. One of them is the iSpy trial that, you know, the big problem is obviously we don't want women to die of their disease. And we don't, but at the same time, we don't want to overtreat people who aren't going to benefit from particular treatments, or if they're not really at that the same kind of risk, we don't want our treatments can be toxic. So we have over the years really learned that breast cancer A is not one disease. There's been a huge amount of science that's that's advanced. And we really understand that breast cancer is many diseases. Some grow very slowly and are fairly indolent. And we've identified that there are these indolent cancers and you can really ratchet down and de-escalate treatment. You may not need radiation or maybe you need, you know, intraoperative or single focus targeted radiation. You don't necessarily, we can do smaller procedures. We do fewer axillary dissections, meaning we don't take out all the lymph nodes. We actually have been also trying to think about how do we move drug development from the very advanced stages, the metastatic setting to the high risk early stage setting. This is, we run an adaptive platform trial across now 27 sites. That's the iSpy trial where we're really trying to find ways to reduce the chance that someone would die of breast cancer. And we use early endpoints. So we're not waiting the five years or 10 years to see if someone recurs. We're really treating first using the medicines to start before surgery, flipping the order of treatment because that's safe, and then using that response, whether the tumor goes away or not, to understand whether the drug is working as a way to accelerate the pace of getting effective drugs into the clinic earlier on so that we can prevent metastatic disease because it's obviously great for patients, but it's also good for the healthcare system and it's incredibly cost-effective. Before we continue... I've been personally funding the Finding Genius podcast for four and a half years now, which has led to 2,700 plus interviews of clinicians, researchers, scientists, CEOs, and other amazing people who are working to advance science and improve our lives and our world. Even though this podcast gets 100,000 plus downloads a month, we need your help to reach hundreds of thousands more worldwide. Please visit FindingGeniusPodcast.com and click on Support Us. We have three levels of membership from 10 to $49 a month, including perks such as the ability to see ahead in our interview calendar and ask questions of upcoming guests, transcripts of podcasts you're interested in, the ability to request specific topics or guests, and more. Visit FindingGeniusPodcast.com and click support us today. Now back to the show. Quick question. So you said medicine first. Does that mean chemo first and then surgery if needed? Or yeah, so, if, so it depends on the kind of cancer. So if you actually have a molecularly high-risk type of tumor, so-called triple negative, HER2 positive, or hormone positive cancer that's growing fast. Chemotherapy is appropriate. It's the most appropriate thing. You want to give that first. And you always want to see what your response to therapy is, because then it gives you a chance for course correction and to do something different. On the other hand, you know, if you have a slower growing tumor, even if it's big, chemotherapy may not be the right treatment, even if you've got higher risk. And there you might want to use hormone therapies or endocrine therapies. And again, giving those first can give you an indication for how well they're working. We have more work to do on that, on those kinds of tumors. And we're actually starting a big study. You know, that's adding, we're adding that to our iSpy family of trials. So you can imagine that against this backdrop of people who have cancers that aren't growing very fast, that where we can really deescalate treatment to cancers that are growing fast, we're starting to learn more about the different kinds of even high-risk breast cancer and how to optimize therapy, who needs immunotherapy, who 
doesn't, et cetera, you have to say, well, clearly every breast cancer isn't the same. Now, on the other hand, we've also had major advances in our understanding of risk. There are some people who inherit errors in some genes that can put them at extremely high risk for getting breast cancer. Everybody knows about BRCA1 or BRCA2, but there are actually about 10 of these genes that where if you have an inherited mutation, you have higher risk for breast cancer. These are not very common. Less than 2% of the population has these, probably less than 1%. And it's maybe 5 5 to 7% of all people have breast cancer. So it's not the majority of cancer. But if you know, you can do things to significantly lower the risk or change change the type of screening. Another thing is that we know that breast density drives risk. Also know that you can inherit small differences in the gene. And we call this polymenogenic genes risk that be put together. Each one by themselves may not mean so much, but put all together you know, it really can give you a good idea of there's another, again, a relatively small group of people whose risk is is substantially increased, but for many, the risk is decreased. So if everyone doesn't have the same risk and, you know, again, family history plays a part in this, your exposures, you know, when you started your period, when you had your children, whether you're taking hormone replacement therapy, all these things matter as part of a global risk. So if it turns out that the risks are different, and the tumors are different, you have to ask ourselves, we don't treat breast cancer as if it's one size fits all. Why are we screening everybody the same? You know, for the last 40 years, our our mantra is early detection saves lives. Everyone should get a screening mammogram starting at 40. And yet there are seven different guidelines in the country. You know, some say start at 40, some say start at 45, some say screen every year, some people say screen every other year, and some say start at 50. But and, what about the screening itself? Is it what could be different about it to uh, to tailor it to different people's uh, circumstances? That's another good question. So we actually have we went from screen film mammography to digital uh, mammography to now three D imaging, which actually has been rolled out across the country. And it's not clear exactly how much value that really adds. Probably what makes the most difference is if you're going to a place where you have dedicated mammographers and very experienced people reading your your films, where you won't get called back more often than you need to, and you won't have... I can give you uh, one one idea. You know, my wife had, you know, she went for a mammogram and then they said her breast tissue was dense. So then she went for, I believe, an ultrasound. And this was over a year ago. So then when she went back, she said... I'm just going to go for the ultrasound. What's the point of doing the mammogram and then it's inconclusive and then I have to go back for the ultrasound. So I guess that's a small example, but maybe there's a nuance well, there that could be helpful. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. There is. And in fact, ultrasound is not a great screening tool. We do it when people have very dense breast tissue. The, you know, the part of the problem with ultrasound and mammography, they are the same kind of technique. They're looking for differences in breast density between the cancer and the underlying tissue. If the density is the same, you're not going to see a difference. Mammography looks not only to see if you have a mass, but it can also see calcifications. So there's actually very good data that mammography is still the best general screening tool. If you actually are very high risk, the best tool to use is MRI. MRI looks very differently and the density isn't a feature because you're looking at the uptake of contrast material, which can identify. So tumors that have a big blood supply will, will show up. So it's a, it's a complementary technique. 
The problem with MR is that it's, it's expensive and it has a relatively high false positive rate, although not as high as ultrasound. So in fact, we're not doing things in the way that we should. And we're not actually thinking about, well, who should get an MRI? So if you were a BRCA carrier you and, and you chose you choose to have heightened surveillance, you should get screened every six months because the kinds of cancers that can develop are fast growing, which means you should be screened more frequently. So we alternate MRI and mammograms so, because they look for different things and we're doing something every six months and an exam. And you know it's very important for people to understand that if you feel a mass in your breast, regardless of whether you've had a screening mammogram recently, you have to go in and get it taken care of. These are some of the myths that people don't understand. And, you know, and this is sort of one of the the reasons why we started the wisdom study is because there has really not fundamentally been any change or improvement in the way we approach screening, you know, in the last 30, 40 years. And what we say is it's high time now that we think about doing risk-based screening, but rather than just do it, we actually have to prove that it's better because then we can just continue to build on it. But, you know, it's hard for people to let go of something that they've learned about and they think is just, oh, this is the way to do it. But it makes sense to say, if you have, I mean, we sort of already do it. If you are a bracket carrier, get screened more frequently and differently. But if all the factors come together to show that you have that similar kind of risk, of course, you should want to be screened more frequently and with the appropriate tools. If on the other hand, your risk is extremely low, it doesn't mean you couldn't ever get breast cancer, but we don't want to be over-screening you because every time you go in, you have a chance of people finding something and getting the and getting called back for a biopsy is very scary and it's very upsetting. And you know, and it's painful. And sometimes we find really small little lesions that could be really early cancer, you know, precancers like in situ cancers or various things. And you know, people are getting bilateral mastectomies for that, which they may really never need. So I think the story of screening is people don't understand that there are harms and benefits to any medical intervention. And what we want to do is more for the people at risk and less for the people at lower risk. Now we have to prove that it's just as safe. So we use, remember I said, an early endpoint. Instead of waiting 20 years to find out the answer, we want to find out if we screen a particular way, are those larger cancers, stage 2B or higher, do we find more of them in the annual group or the personalized group? So if they're the same, then we know it's just as safe. And why is this important? So one of the reasons why I'm so focused on this is that people at risk or people who develop these fast-growing cancers. Remember, this; these are the kinds of cancers that we study in our iSpy trial where we're trying to develop better therapy. Most of those women don't have screen-detected cancers. They either develop them when they're young or they develop them between screens because they are the fast-growing cancers. Again, it's a myth that if you didn't have your cancer detected on mammography, that someone made a mistake, but that's not true. And if you have a big cancer that somehow you've neglected it and it's your fault that you didn't come in, also not true. Fast growing cancers grow fast and they can pop up very quickly. I know this because I've run a prevention program for over 25 years. I know this because well, how, I've devoted how, how fast my life to fast. it. Yeah, how fast is fast, by the way, for context versus slow? Well, I mean, a slow growing cancer can be very slowly growing over a number of years, whereas a fast growing tumor can you know, get to six centimeters in four months or five months. Oh, wow. Okay. I didn't realize so how fast fast was. So that's why I asked. So they're very, so, so it's very different. So 
I think you know enough now. Does it make sense to screen everybody the same? Right. No, it doesn't. I mean, yeah, what you really need to do is what you're saying is figure out what predispositions they have. And then they need a different schedule and probably a different method of screening than just everyone else. It needs to be customized. Right. So there. So how do you how do you move the field? especially one that is so fraught with controversy and people feel very strongly. It's like a almost religious about, about their beliefs. And the thing is, we're not trying to say one is right and one is wrong. We want, we want to get to truth. And a very important, there's several things that have really made it possible to do this. You know, that there was a case in the Supreme Court against myriad genetics where the Supreme Court ruled that you can't patent the genome. And all of a sudden that said, okay, more than one company can run genetic testing. So it took the monopoly away from genetic testing. It also opened the field up so next-gen sequencing techniques could come in and we could lower the price by tenfold. And mm. so companies could, companies could really bring in testing at a much lower and cost-effective and highly accurate way. We partnered for our study with Color Genomics, who you know has had brought down the cost of, of genetic testing to about the level of a mammogram. And plus we could get these, do this polygenic risk at the same time. And there are a number of companies now that do this. And, and so it's, which is important, right? And we ask the question, how do you do this? Well, you have to run a big trial. Remember the women's health initiative prior to the women's health initiative being run, everybody, there was a, there was a widely held belief that postmenopausal hormone replacement lowered your risk of breast cancer, reduced your chance of Alzheimer's, you know, reduced, was good for, for heart disease. But in fact, this is sort of the advertising for it. And there was a number of people who were very concerned, especially about the use of progesterone in increasing the risk of breast cancer. And finally, this big, large scale trial was run. And in 2002, when the data came out that yes, combined hormone replacement increases the risk of breast cancer, you know, the sales of hormone replacement drugs plummeted. And that was actually one of the first times we saw any decrease in the breast cancer rates was right, was right at that time. So in fact, these big studies are so important to get people to let go of widely held beliefs. And what we are looking for is, I'm someone who likes to build platform trials. You build a big infrastructure to do trials and you don't just run one, you actually set up a path to be able to constantly improve what you do. But the wisdom study which is women informed to screen, depending on measures of risk, is a trial for by all of us. And it's really for women. It's about women. And what I say to women is everyone is being asked, everyone over the age of 40 who hasn't been diagnosed with breast cancer is being asked to screen for 30 to 35 years of their lives, or maybe 40. Why not spend five years with us? Get the answers for yourselves, your daughters, your mothers, your friends, everyone you love. The only way to do better is to know better. And we're not going to be able to move and help everyone unless we all come together. You know, white women, black women, Hispanic women, Native American women, everybody. We need to have this study represent the entire population of the United States so that we can ask these important questions. And once we've established, if screening the personalized screening isn't as good, we can adjust it and try it again. If it turns out that it's just as good, we should then just continue to improve it. That's actually the next step. We actually want to do even better, not just about risk, but what kind of cancer are you at risk for? Are you at risk for the fast growing cancer? Are you at risk for the slow growing cancer? And not only is this about risk, 
but it's about risk reduction. If you have high risk, it's just as important to focus on what you can do to lower that risk. Okay, so think cardiology. When I started in breast cancer, by far the biggest risk for women was dying of heart disease. That's no longer true. You have more risk now or the same risk of dying of breast cancer than you do of heart disease. Why? Because the cardiologist did a systematic approach to understanding risk, finding out what those early endpoints were that predicted risk, blood pressure, cholesterol. And then they developed a series of interventions to try and intervene and lower that risk. We can do the same thing in breast cancer. There are like $100 million has been spent on breast cancer prevention research, and it's very poorly used. Why? For several reasons. One, we don't do a good job of assessing risk. The wisdom study is putting into place risk assessment at the time you start screening and making it standard. And then if you have risk, we actually now have a tool called Breast Health Decisions to help go through what are the options to reduce your risk. And as we continue to work on that, as we continue to understand more on the one side about how to treat different kinds of cancers better, if we start to understand who's at risk for what kind of cancer, we can target and focus our prevention work and risk reduction work in a way to really make a dent and bring down the chance that you would ever even get breast cancer or even die of breast cancer. So what what does this ideal cohort look like for the big study that you want to do? What's in it? Who's in it? You mentioned- we are doing it. We have 34,000 women enrolled in the wisdom wow. study. So let's be clear. We are well on our way, but we want to triple the number of people who are in that cohort. So everybody listening, if you are a woman between 40 and 74, go to the wisdom, go to wisdomstudy.org, sign up, join, join us and be part of the 100,000 women you know, who want to carry, who want to create a better future for themselves and the people they love. And, you know, all you have to do is sign up. You can do this. It is actually COVID safe. It's, you can do it from the privacy of your home. You can do it from anywhere. You can do it on your phone. You can, all you have to do is sign up. And we ask two things. We actually ask if you'll be randomized because we don't know for sure, which is the best option, screening every year, starting at 40 or screening depending on your risk. Everyone at 50 would get your, we use one guideline or another. So we're within the framework of all the different guidelines of which there are many. And what we do is we assign you an age to start screening and how often you should screen and with what type of tool, mammogram, or in the case of people at very high risk, mammogram and MRI. And if you are in the personalized arm, we'll send you a little spit kit that you spit into and then send back in the mail. That's all you have to do. The only piece of data we need from your medical record is if you get a mammogram, we need to know the density. And there's a little term on there that says you're either have fatty breasts, scattered fibroglandular densities, you're heterogeneously dense or dense, A, B, C, D. That's the only piece of information we need from your medical record. But the other thing that we need is we need the people who join this study to be committed, be committed to reporting back to us every year and telling us if anything happens. This is, this is an experiment, right? That we believe that we can go to women themselves. This is a pragmatic study. It's actually funded by the Affordable Care Act, the PCORI Foundation. I mean, uh, the Patient-Centered Outcomes Research Institute, which came out of the Affordable Care Act. And we believe that a way to really do this work is pragmatic is to go to the women themselves and let them report. But we need people to join us and be part of this force for good 
for change, right? For understanding, knowing better so that we can do better. And, uh, you know, and then another really exciting opportunity we've just applied to the National Cancer Institute, actually collect, you know, all the tissues from anyone who's gotten cancer so we can now ask the question, who is at risk for what type of cancer? So we can further refine our ways of screening. There are all kinds of things that are on the science side. There's so many advances, right? And we want to be able to keep up with clinical recommendation. It often takes a long time for new ideas to actually make their way to the clinic. We're trying to shorten that timeline to accelerate our ability to learn our knowledge terms, right? Because, you know, everybody, you know, people, most people are upgrading their phones every year. We're used to that. Mm-hmm. Okay. We're using, can you imagine if you were using the technology for cell phones circa 1980? Good luck. That was like the brick Motorola. Right. right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, so nobody, nobody thinks twice about that. That's one of the things I learned in business school. What, why should we want the same thing for medicine? There's a lot more on the line than just the convenience of how you use your phone. Well, so, how long is the delay between uh, a new innovation and it has to go through clinical trials and et cetera, 10 et cetera, to 20 cetera, years. So it, gets, so it gets the clinic 10 to 20 years. Well, wow. yeah, th- th- this is, this is, uh, we, we, we have to, we have to figure out a way to break that deadlock, having platform trials, having c- things that, you know, like when we finish this, we're not going to disband the whole infrastructure and start all over. No, we're going to keep this infrastructure and keep it going and keep learning. And that's, that's the more efficient way to run trials. And, you know, everyone's health depends on it. And I am a, like we, you know, the network, what's really great about the trials, it's open everywhere in the country. We actually built it on this Salesforce platform and we, you know, and we have the ability to, to integrate new information about risk assessment whenever that comes forward. And thanks to the Affordable Care Act, you know, people can't be discriminated against because of their genetic testing and there are no pre-existing conditions. And we just barely escaped those being taken away. So that's good. But, you know, people need to think about this. The other thing that, the other thing I think is really exciting, you know, so, so this trial came out of the Athena Breast Health Network. This is a group of the five University of California medical centers, the breast programs. Um, We got together to really try and improve the way we collect data and learn about breast cancer and also make sure that we could take the advances in what we know about the different breast cancer types and bring this into the screening and prevention or risk reduction arena. And then we, we expanded to Sanford Health in the Midwest. And then now we've expanded to the University of Chicago, Louisiana, and Alabama, and Florida. And the trials really open nationwide. And so any woman, any, so if, if you know anybody, spread the word, because the faster we do this, the more people join us, the faster we will learn and the sooner we can improve and bring those Mm. to every woman. And, you know, uh, I mean, you have a gigantic cohort already, if it's 34,000, Yes. how far along are you in analyzing the data? And I mean, 90,000 obviously is a lot better, but still these, well, the we can, trials I, I've seen, this is huge. Yes. So we, if we can, we're looking, we're looking to, you know, add, you know, another 15,000 women in this next year, and that will be 15, 20,000 women. And we can, when we do that, we'll be able to, within a year and a half of that, be able to analyze this cohort and explain whether personalized, personalized screening is as safe. And if it's less okay. morbid and if it's preferred by women and if it's more conducive to people 
thinking about prevention or risk reduction, uh, risk reducing intervention. So we're, we are, we're pretty close and the faster we get it accrued, the faster we can answer these questions. And we actually also have some funding from the National Cancer Institute to really try and target populations that are often not included in trials. We want to make sure that our population reflects the U.S. population in terms of African-American women, Latino women, as I said, Native American women. You know, one of the interesting issues is that African-American women used to have a lower incidence of breast cancer. That has actually changed, and they have now the same incidence of breast cancer as white women, probably because the screening rates are the same, but they have a higher chance of dying of breast cancer. And some people think that that's because of access, but I think actually the data are increasingly clear because they have a a higher incidence of the kinds of cancers that are more lethal, triple negative breast cancers. So this again highlights the reason why it's important to have people of all ethnicities, all races be part of the trial. And for us to really think about who are the people who have special risk. We are working now on tools that help us predict who's at risk for these more killer cancers, the triple negative breast cancer, maybe the HER2 cancers, and to be able to screen those people differently. So that's our next, that's the next big advance and that we're really working on trying to bring that into the study. And as soon as we get to that first step, we'll just seamlessly move that right in. Laura, one question. Uh, You talked about people being randomized in the trial. Is there any opportunity for them to not be randomized? And why would they do that if so? Absolutely. That's a great question. So we know that some people uh, don't know what what's best. And if you don't know, you can be assigned by chance and be randomized. And that's actually an important way that we learn. However, many people feel very strongly, so they wouldn't go on the trial if they couldn't pick which side, which arm they wanted to be in. So we have another study arm, our observational arm, where you can choose because there's a lot you can learn still. So no matter how you feel, you can join the trial. So when you get on, the first question we ask is, do you want to be randomized or do you want to actually choose which arm you join? So you can either say, no, I only want to be screened every year starting at 40. Or you can say, well, actually, I don't want to do that. I want to be in the personalized arm. I want all my information and I want to be told, but I'll follow the recommendations. It's interesting. One of the things that we've learned is a lot of people join the personalized arm because they think that they're going to be told that they have higher risk and will be screened more frequently. And sometimes they're quite surprised when we say, well, no, we think you only need to screen every other year. Um, And uh, sometimes that's hard for people to accept. And they say, well, gee, why would we say to screen less often? And as we say that there are, there are, negative things that happen from screening. You know, you can get called back for a biopsy you don't need. You can be diagnosed with something that sounds scary that really isn't scary and leads you to do procedures that are, you know, that you don't need. And that's one of the important things. And and even the finding of a a tiny cancer that isn't going to kill you. One of the things we're trying to also educate people about is that every cancer is not destined to be a killer cancer. So make sure that you ask questions when you're diagnosed, make sure that you understand that, make sure that you know that there are lots of tools out there that can prevent you from being over-treated. We don't want people to be over-treated or under-treated. We want them to have just the right treatment. And we need to be applying the science that we know to help people pick the appropriate therapy. But that's one of the reasons why we also need to be able to tailor screening based on risk. Most people have less risk than they think they have. I mean, 
obviously every woman is at risk, but, and it's a common disease, but many women are at less risk and no test is perfect, of course, and screening is not one, but it's also not one where if you, you know, every cancer detected isn't a life save because many of these cancers are not necessarily killer cancers. And again, we want to treat them with the seriousness with which they deserve. Some cancers really are very aggressive and scary and they need to be appropriately treated. And so that's, I think this is really important information for women to know, and they have to get yeah. themselves educated. They have to go to a physician who will take the time to explain all that to them, that there's a, there's a lot we've learned over the last 10 or 20 years that can make their treatments much more effective and much better and much more personalized and appropriate. Okay. Well, very good. So it seems like the number one thing, obviously, is to get women uh, interested in the study. So where can they go again? I want to Wisdomstudy.org. They can just go to wisdomstudy.org. Anyone okay. can join. It's super easy. It's in Spanish and English. And if anyone has any questions, they can just go to our, uh, when they go to the website, we actually have recorded sessions and talks about the trial that are on the website. Uh, we always have a series of upcoming events that people can join in and listen and answer questions. You'll find out if you have questions, you just want to contact us. There's ways to do that. We're really, we, we're very excited to make a difference. We know that we can change the fate of women with breast cancer through this approach. And we're excited to do it as just as fast as possible. And uh, by all, all of us working together, we know we can make the future much brighter. Excellent. Well, Laura, thank you for coming on the podcast. I really appreciate it. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. You've been listening to the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. If you like what you hear, be sure to review and subscribe to the Finding Genius Podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And want to be smarter than everybody else? Become a premium member at FindingGeniusPodcast.com. This podcast is for information only. No advice of any kind is being given. Any action you take or don't take as a result of listening is your sole responsibility. Consult professionals when advice is needed.